Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. During the fighting in the Pacific during World War II, a sailor on a United States submarine was stricken with acute appendicitis. The problem was the nearest surgeon was thousands of miles away. Pharmacist mate Weller Lights watched the sailor's temperature rise to 106 degrees. The man's only hope was an operation. Lights told him, I've watched doctors do this, and I think I could do it. What do you say? The sailor consented. In the wardroom, the patient was stretched out on a table beneath a floodlight. Lights and assisting officers dressed in reverse pajama tops masked their face with gauze. The crew stood by the diving planes to keep the ship steady. The cook boiled the water for sterilizing the instruments, and a tea strainer served as an antiseptic cone. A broken-handed scalpel was the operating instrument. Alcohol drained from the torpedoes was the antiseptic, and bent tablespoons served to keep the muscles open. After cutting through layers of muscle, the mate took 20 minutes to finally find the appendix. But two and a half hours later, the last catgut stitch was sewed just as the last drop of ether gave out. Thirteen days later, that patient was back at work. Now, that was an especially magnificent act because the surgery was not done by a trained surgeon in a modern operating room, but rather by a relatively untrained man under the most difficult of circumstances. Now, Jesus had said earlier in this chapter, I tell you the truth that anyone who has faith in me will do the things that I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us, the same power that through Jesus brought regeneration and life to many also flows through us. The same wisdom that brought healing to the most fragmented relationships is operable in us. And the same miraculous love that brought life to impossible situations resides in us through his Holy Spirit. Now before we even begin, the first point we must settle in our minds in regard to the Holy Spirit is whether the Holy Spirit is a real person whose work it is to get a hold of us and use us, or whether the Holy Spirit is merely some vague power that we are to get a hold of and use to our own personal benefit. Now, our minds think in pictures and feel what the Spirit starts to move us away from the thinking of the Spirit as a person. Because normally to us, to be filled with something evokes the idea of a gas or a liquid or a force. Thinking like that, I want to be filled with the Spirit means instead of just three amps, I want eight amps. Instead of just one gallon of the Spirit, I want two gallons. But as soon as you start to think like that, of the Holy Spirit in that way, you immediately start looking for some kind of technique. This is important as a mere matter of truth for either the Holy Spirit is a real person or he is not. But it's also important on a practical level. If we think of the Holy Spirit only as a mysterious power, our thought will continually be, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? However, if we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, 
our thought will be, how can the Holy Spirit get more of me? Now, the first thought can be selfish. The second is the essence of New Testament Christianity. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to start back in verse 16 for the sake of context from last week. Jesus speaking says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of the truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides in you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. As I mentioned last week, the Greek word used here always contains the idea of encouragement as one who will shoulder the responsibility of another. That is the spirit of truth that the world, Jesus says, cannot receive. Why not? Because you have to be a Christian to understand and receive the things of God. In that regard, the Holy Spirit opens blind eyes so that the unregenerate may finally see the truth. He then unfogs their minds so that they may understand what they see. And then he woos their will till they come to place their faith in the Savior. And without this work, there would not be one single Christian on this earth. But by means of it, the Holy Spirit saves us and then glorifies the Lord Jesus. The word translated comfortless in some of your translations is actually the word for orphan. We are not alone, abandoned, helpless, or hopeless. Wherever we go, the Holy Spirit is with us and in us. So why should we feel like orphans? There is no need to have a troubled heart when you have the very Spirit of God dwelling within you. But if I were to be honest, there have been times in my Christian life when I felt like an orphan. That is why it is so important to know the truths that we have been studying these past couple of weeks. We are not alone if we truly believe what this is saying. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote back in 2 Corinthians that he had been disheartened. But he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 7, 6. The God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Perhaps Titus asked, how are you doing, Paul, old friend? Not too well? Then maybe he put his arm around Paul and said, Paul, let's pray. He then prayed with Paul and listened to Paul, reminded him of past battles and victories, and shared some scripture with him. And pretty soon Paul started feeling better and was ready to go back into the field. Now this gives us a picture of the comforter, one who comes alongside. Now, the Revised Standard Version says the counselor. The Living Bible says comforter. Knox translation very beautifully says another friend for you. If we are going through hard times, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to come alongside and comfort and strengthen us. And we wouldn't need that if there wasn't a need for that. Most of us are afraid of something. And if we let that get the best of our thoughts, it can consume us, and life can become absolutely unbearable. I read a quote this week about fear. It said, fear can be debilitating. Fear strips the athlete of his prowess, drains creativity from the artist, muddies the leader's clarity, 
and drives the soldier deeper into the foxhole. Now, Jesus has just finished telling his disciples, and by extension, all the Christians in here, don't let your heart be troubled. I find three sources of heart trouble that affected the disciples and continue to plague believers today. Jesus addressed all these troubles in John chapter 14. Heart trouble number one, death is near. At this time, the Son of God is facing imminent death. And so the disciples naturally worried that if Jesus could not escape his own demise, what hope did anyone else have? Death is the ultimate fear, and the Bible says it is the last enemy. However, we can also be deathly afraid of disease, sickness, accidents, crime, war, poverty, and a host of other fleshly afflictions. We fear dying, and we fear someone we love is going to die. Heart trouble number two, daily problems. The disciples wondered, how are we going to handle daily life without Jesus being here? In the same way, each day we roll out of bed and enter daily life, we risk damaging something valuable, suffering something painful, hurting or losing someone important, or failing in something critical. People experience pressure, lose jobs, suffer pain, endure hardship, feel rejection, face bankruptcy, and fall ill. And sometimes those problems of daily life can seem overwhelming. Heart trouble number three, disobedience. Because we are fundamentally sinful from birth and we will never be completely sinless in this life as we continue to battle the consequences of our own disobedience and things like guilt, shame, regret, remorse, self-condemnation, fear of discovery, dread of repentance, and avoidance of Christian responsibility. How exhausting to walk around with unresolved sin hanging from our hearts like a huge boulder. Think about that. It's the three Ds, isn't it? Death produces daily fear, daily problem causes anxiety, and disobedience generates shame. Each and every day of our existence, we run a gauntlet of fear, anxiety, and shame, which express the full array of dangers to humanity. That is why we need to remember that Jesus, though sinless, was also completely human. Therefore, he experienced the complete range of human weaknesses and afflictions, but was yet without sin. So we have a high priest who ministers with complete understanding through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, J.I. Packer says, is like a floodlight. Like a floodlight on Christ. Why would he say that? You see, when you see a floodlight, you don't really see the floodlight. You only see what the floodlight is trying to show you. The floodlight throws something into relief so you can see the beauty of it. And so the Holy Spirit does not come along and speak to you about himself. The Holy Spirit comes and says, look at the advocate. You see, as we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit is our advocate on the inside. We have to have one that's not just on the outside, that's Jesus, you have to also have one on the inside. Do you know why? Because of our own stubborn and sinful hearts. The inside advocate has to come alongside of us and say, look, look, 
I love you, but you're just being stupid about this. That's an advocate. He is against us and for us at the same time. Have you ever had one of those, a person like that? You're in a kind of a mess, and a person comes alongside of you and starts to talk to you and shows you that they love you. But at a certain point, he confronts you and says, but you have to stop this. It is killing you. Or if you're worried, the Holy Spirit comes and says, look at Jesus Christ. Look at all he's paid. Look at all that he has done. Do you think he's going to do all of that and then let your life end up in a ditch? Trust him. And so you begin to start trusting him. That is a lifelong process, by the way. The Holy Spirit is then your advocate on the inside, talking to you about Christ, who's your advocate in heaven. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. This is the truth of Scripture if we will just give ourselves over completely to it. To dispel the fear that's in our life, we just need to meditate on this kind of truth. Because for the believer, fear is the result of ignorance. People who know the future do not, who, who, I'm sorry, who fear the future do not understand prophecy. People who dr- have dread for sin do not know the good news. And people who are terrified of death do not fully understand the Lord's promises. Christians, on the other hand, have no reason to fear anything, including death. Granted, no one looks forward to dying, and everyone wants to prolong life, but death loses its power to frighten us because Christ has overcome it. And so one way to reduce anxiety is to allow divine truth to guide your every decision. Jesus did not bring truth to the earth merely for the sake of education. He expects us to absorb the truth and then to apply that truth so that our lives will be conformed to his way. When we know that we are living in harmony with God's will, anxiety begins to fade. We need to meditate on these truths that Jesus articulated in the upper room and then discover new ways to apply them to every situation in our lives. And finally, we have also been given, it says, the peace of Jesus Christ. That means, even though I might not understand what's going on, I have a peace that bypasses my brain and somehow penetrates my heart. I might not know why things aren't working out or why things are coming down, but in the midst of all of this, Jesus offers me his peace. Listen to me. One of the best ways to ease a troubled heart is to bathe it in the love of God. When you feel like an orphan, let the Spirit of God reveal God's love to you in a deeper way. Charles Spurgeon said, Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Your heart can become a heaven on earth as you commune with the Lord and worship him. Look at verse 19 with me. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This poor disciples aside before his arrest to equip them for ministry 
without his physical presence. He says, you will no longer physically see me, but you will know that the whole Trinity is now connected with you. He called them to shine the light of truth in a world that was still going to be ruled by evil. And he had faithfully equipped them with all the information that they would need to do this. However, as we see, fear threatened to render them powerless. Why? For the same reason fear plagues Christians today. And it's simply lack of confidence in the truth of what he has said. The disciples trusted in Christ, but they lacked the confidence. And there is a profound difference between trust and confidence. Trust is a decision to accept as truth the words of Christ and to make them the basis of all my future decisions. But confidence is the growing feeling of peace as we apply the words of Christ and see them confirmed in our lives over and over again. Trust is a decision, but I think confidence is more a feeling. Now, if you're like me, you are relentlessly pragmatic. You want to know how to turn these truths into actions that actually make a difference tomorrow, Monday morning. How can we render fear obsolete? How can we put fear out of our daily experience? Now, here are some simple direct suggestions that have worked well for me. Although I'm certainly not perfected in any of these things, I'm growing just like you are. First, acknowledge your source of power. If you have trusted in Christ, you have within you the presence and power of Almighty God. So remember, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And so when confronted by something you fear, choose to turn your attention to the power of God residing within and consciously ask him to take control of you. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, the old Welsh preacher, used to ask people, are you a Christian? If they said, I'm trying, he said, then I would know right then they had no idea what it truly meant to be a Christian. What did he mean? You see, being a Christian is a standing. It's a position. And if you want a life-changing book on this, get Watchman Nee's great little classic book entitled Sit, Walk, Stand. You can buy a new one for less than $6. But back to my point. If you say I'm trying, what that means is, Jesus is my example. He's a wonderful example to be sure, but he first has to be your advocate. And until you've retained him as your advocate, you have no real relationship with him. Do you understand that? If there's anybody in this room who says, well, I've tried my best. I've tried to give, live a good life, at least better than a lot of other people who seemingly still have better lives than me. I don't understand. I think God owes me something. If you believe that, if you're mad because you feel like God owes you something, if you feel like God should answer your prayer because you're better than some other people, then you've really never understood him as your advocate. You have never really entered a relationship with him as your attorney. In order to make him your advocate, what do you do then? You have to, number one, you have to first admit there are two holy eyes before whom you will never be able to stand on your own. Because our conscience knows there is a courtroom. There is a judgment seat. There is a court before which we all must stand accused. There is a justice that we all have to deal with. 
There's a standard we know that we've all violated. That's why we need Christ. Number two, you're trying to be your own advocate. That's the reason you can't take criticism. That's the reason you can't take any kind of failure in your life. And finally, thirdly, say, Jesus, you have to be my advocate. We're just being practical today. Also, we need to begin each day with prayer. Now, the problem with that is it can so quickly dissolve into meaningless routines with memorized prayers. Look, there's going to be times when you don't know what to say. So say that. Lord, right now, I don't know what to say. And if no specific worry or fear comes to you, make that prayer one of thanksgiving. Either way, beginning the day with prayer is a means of consciously placing the Lord in charge of each new day. Every day before my feet hit the floor, I usually pray, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want that to be the beginning thing because immediately now my my focus is off of fleshly things, off of the night. I want to start at that moment beginning to serve him. So for me, this is a, a crucial source of power and peace. And finally, once again, being pragmatic, we need to correct our habit of being so pessimistic. Our penchant to fear the worst as unpleasant events unfold is one of the primary reasons that God gave us prophecy. It is virtually impossible to remain pessimistic when you understand the future of God's plan. However dismal the present may appear, however victorious evil appears to be, we are assured that God's redemptive plan cannot be defeated. Verse 21, please. Who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Once again from last week, how do we prove our love for the Lord? It is by obeying his commands to do and not what not to do in his word. But someone says, but I am a Christian, and yet Jesus does not seem all that real to me. That may be true. But notice that in the same verse that Jesus gives a promise of further revelation of himself, the Lord also gives conditions upon which that continual revelation will be given. And they are the conditions of two things, keeping his commandments and loving one another. So we have to ask ourselves, have we met those conditions? It's easy, I suppose, quite often that that people think it's possible to enjoy the fullness of a Christian life without a fervent love for Christ. Or it is possible to love him without really obeying him. We imagine that being justified by faith, we therefore have no need for an obedient walk. But this is not true. And this one verse alone should refute that. What does it also say in James? Faith without works is dead. What does First John say about it? This is love for God that you obey his commandments. There's a balance there, isn't there? On the one hand, we know we can never be good enough to purchase salvation. And so we just rejoice in the grace of God. But on the other hand, if we are truly saved, then works are going to be the proof of that. The weird thing is many Christians will be willing to do spectacular things 
if by that means they could come to know Christ better. But they are unwilling to do the commonplace things that are involved in simple day-by-day obedience. It's never very exciting. Now, my personal theological position is that once given, the spirit is resident and can never be taken away. But as the believer yields to that spirit, the Father, and we begin to love the Word, and we begin to pray and obey, there will be a deeper relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Salvation means we're going to heaven, but submission means that heaven comes to us. Now, I don't have anything against Christian t-shirts or bumper stickers with an encouraging message or plaques displaying Bible verses or any other wholesome knickknacks people want to buy. I own some of those things. They're fine. But I wonder how many believers unconsciously hope to impact the world through Christian merchandise instead of allowing their conduct to make a difference. I admit, the first time I put a fish on my car... It felt pretty good at the time. You should have seen my first car after I got saved. It had so many Jesus stickers on it. It was so colorful. It looked like Walt Disney threw up on it. But that's not really my preference today. I've since discovered that non-believers don't pay much attention to what we wear or what we display on our cars. But they do observe how we behave. So are you up for a challenge? It won't be easy, but it's relatively uncomplicated. Why not place a silver fish emblem on the inside of the car, right there in the middle of the steering wheel? Then see if you can behave on the road in such a way that other drivers will stop and think, ah, that must be a Christian. That's not so cheap or easy, is it? Especially when you think some of the drivers are idiots. Or is that just me? I mean, when someone pulls out in front of me, they're a moron, right? But when I do it to someone else, there's always a mitigating circumstance in my head. I mean, obviously they sped up at the last second, right before I pulled out. So even when it's completely my fault, I can still think that they're the idiot. This is why you need to pray for me. Verse 22, please. Judas, not as scary, said to him, Lord... What then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Just answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. Who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. Judas, not the traitor, but another disciple, asked a question that gave the Lord another opportunity to emphasize the distinction between his own sheep, and the world. He simply rewarded his earlier statement that the means of seeing him is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the method by which we see that and is that view is obedience to Christ. And you think about it, those who do not believe are really kind of like people without eyes. They cannot see Christ if they do not have the means. So Jesus uses figurative language to unite several concepts. Obedience, love, the words of Christ, seeing Christ and abiding are all facets of the same positive response to God, and they are all made possible by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus encouraged us not to be troubled because his person and place await us. Now he's saying, 
Let not your heart be troubled because I am making a place within you. In fact, that word translated place in verse 2 and the word for abode in verse 23 is the same Greek word. Jesus is preparing a dwelling place for us, but he also wants to dwell in us through the Spirit. Paul says in Philippians 1, The good work that God began in you, he will bring to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. He's a glorious person, this Holy Spirit. And he will not stop trying to become the glorious person that you should be. He's going to oppose anything in your heart that tries to thwart you. He's not going to let you go. This is a friend whose love has teeth in it. This is a friend who's utterly for you, which means sometimes he's against you for you. Puritan John Owen in his excellent little book, Communion, writes, and I shared this idea last week, but I really feel like we need to hear it again this morning. Owen writes, Sometimes the soul wonders whether it is a child of God or not because so much of the sin nature remains. To support this claim, the Holy Spirit comes and bears witness that the claim is true. The picture is a judicial proceeding in a court of law. The judge being seated, the person concerned lays his claim, produces evidence, and then pleads his case. Then a person of known and proved integrity comes into the court and testifies on behalf of the claimant. This stops all the mouths of the adversaries and fills that man with, who pleaded with joy and satisfaction. It is the same with the believer. The soul, by the power of its own conscience, is brought before the law of God. There the soul puts in its plea that it's a true child of God and that it does indeed belong in God's family. And to prove that, he produces all the evidences in us which faith gives us that we have a right and a title to be accepted by God. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. So as we finish up this morning, one of the most encouraging facts of Christianity is the comfort not only comes alongside us, but resides inside of us. It's really one of the most devastating thoughts anyone can entertain when he's going through trouble is, I'm alone. And after that comes self-pity, and then the thought that, well, no one really cares. Now, these are common feelings, but they are unnecessary for the believer. When caring for a sick child, the believing parent is never alone. They are not alone in a hospital facing death or standing over a fresh grave or at work or on a missionary compound. Even if we do not feel Christ's presence, he is within us. So, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus said, believe in God and believe in me. Therefore, I can either choose to drown in doubt or I can choose to say, thank you, Father, that I'm going to heaven. Thank you that I can know your nature because I can see it in your son. Thank you that I can talk to you freely through the privilege of prayer. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the peace that you have given me in Christ Jesus. And so in obedience to all your commands, Lord, I will not let my heart be troubled. Let us pray. Lord God, I think of the words of that old song, sweep over my soul, sweep over my soul, sweet spirit, sweep over my soul. My rest is complete when I sit at his feet. Sweet spirit, sweep over my soul. Do that for us this day we ask. In the name of Christ, amen. We'll step away from the Gospel of John next week.